We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week, in a special celebration of his work, as part of hopefully an occasional series focusing in on classic composers, we're looking at the work of the great Elmer Bernstein, who lived from 1922 to 2004 and left us with some of the most beautiful and profound scores in 20th century cinematic history. So in our previous incarnation, Sean, of Between the Notes, which is now lost to the ages, as we've said before, I think we did an episode on Elmer Bernstein. But when I said to you, given, again, as we keep saying all the time, we're still under this, you know, waiting game for when we're going to get new films and talk potentially about newer music that's a bit more main, you know, in the in the public eye. Um, I said, let's do let's do something about, you know, a classic composer. Let's focus on one. And you were the, and Elmer Bernstein was the first person that leapt at, at you, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it was because he would be on for me the, the Mount Rushmore of film music. You know, the founding fathers of film music. However, however you want to say it, he would be up there with Alfred Newman, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Max Steiner, Bernard Herrmann, you know, John Williams. But um, Elmer Bernstein was a trailblazer and a pioneer and yet he also had a remarkable ability to come up with some of the most heartbreakingly beautiful melodies that ever heard in um in cinema and i think we are coming up to the 16th anniversary of his death as we record this it was august 18th 2004 and i and i I acknowledged that and i thought okay what better time to champion the extraordinary legacy of one of the greatest composers ever to ever to grace film and it's um it struck me actually 2004 was rough because we lost jerry goldsmith in july 2004 and then we lost elmer bernstein about a month later i mean two titans i mean it's just it it talk about closing a a chapter in pop culture history when you lose people like that the, the medium is never the same again and i think i'm really excited about the um the playlist that we've cooked up and what we're going to be talking about because i think it showcases what a what a remarkable individual and what an extraordinary musician Elmer Bernstein was yeah definitely I mean you know you say he's one of the titans there of um you know the 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 first you know major sort of mid-20th century era of uh a film composing I mean he would have been he would have been almost a hundred you know from where we are if he was still alive today so I suppose you know, he, he came. He was he was around, wasn't he? At the point when you had people like Steiner, Newman, and Herman doing their thing, but 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 his career spanned right up to the early two thousands. You know, similar, I suppose, to Jerry Goldsmith. But it feels like does does Elmer Bernstein go further back, or are they are they roughly contemporary? And I suppose, you know, how, the span because we're our, our ten choices are quite you know cover quite a good forty year span 40 50 year span so kind of where does the story begin for Bernstein 
Well, I suppose um, let's uh, start at they, as they say at the beginning. So, born born in New York uh, to a to a Jewish family. Interestingly, looking up his his uh, biographical information, he um, started as as a, as a dancer and an actor, and gra- and gravitated towards music from like late childhood onwards. Was mentored by um, Aaron Copeland, who is considered the uh, one of the, the the Godfather of the of the Americana pastoral uh, style of music very very influenced by Aaron Copeland we'll, we'll hear that as we get into Bernstein's Western scores uh, was drafted into the, the United States Army Air Forces and wrote music for the Armed Forces uh, Radio and that militaristic influence would again come to bear on a lot of his later scores particularly his his comedy scores and he um, he worked his way into the uh, the uh, film industry, where he immediately established a very very distinct voice. You're right; he was um, contemporaries uh, with the likes of of Joe Goldsmith. I mean, maybe in terms of films, he might have pre- he predated Joe Goldsmith by a few years. At this point in the 1950s, Joe Goldsmith started in the in the first part of that decade by working on television. And then it was in the latter part of that decade that Goldsmith moved into movies, whereas Gold, um, Bernstein was a few years earlier and very much coming in the wake of people like Alex North and, and Bernard Herrmann and, and people like that. One of the interesting things that I learned about uh, Bernstein was that he was blacklisted in the McCarthy communist scare of the, of the 1950s, which I didn't know. And what that meant was that his the, the films that he was assigned to score suddenly became worse and worse. Almost as as a as a punishment, there was a notoriously bad film that I looked up called Robot Monster, which you know someone of Bernstein's skill shouldn't have been going anywhere near that. But this was this was a direct result of of being blacklisted uh, during the McCarthy trials, and he came out of that um, and immediately restored his reputation with scores like uh, the man with the golden arm and the ten commandments is two of the scores that we'll be talking about today which are extraordinary achievements for very different reasons and yeah i think that what what i love about bernstein's music is that even he had he had a remarkable capacity for intimacy and warmth and kind of homeliness and an emotional directness and I think a lot of people think that's easy. I think a lot of people make the mistaken assumption that to come up with a memorable melody is easy. I think it's not It's not easy at all to craft deceptively simple music that speaks to both the heart and the brain is very, very hard to do. And Bernstein had a, had a, 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 a real gift for that. But even in his more grandiose scores, me did, we, we, we've selected a lot of scores that are a more rambunctious and more sweeping. Even within those parameters, he was able to find quieter, more deeply affecting nuances. So I think he was just, he was just an incredible man. And, and yeah, and I think that you, you quite correctly pointed out that the span of the scores that we've picked give an indication of the breadth of, of this person's career. It's really quite remarkable. I suppose there's a real sense of like diversity in terms of the kind of things he could do, Bernstein, really. And I, I think we're reflecting that in, in the scores we're going to talk about. Because he could, he could kind of flip from jocular and fun to really sinister and intense and then quite sweeping and beautiful and romantic. And again, as and we've talked about this before, with other composers there are all the best composers always have that definitive style about them there's something in even something as diverse as airplane compared to far from heaven say 
there's always something in there where you go, that's Elmer Bernstein, like you would with John Williams or like you would with Jerry Goldsmith. And that is always a signifier of, of a composer who just breaks through and manages to put their own stamp on film music, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I To go back to the earlier word, I think there was a sense of intimacy in, in Bernstein's music. I think that there are point towards... Um, uh, acquaintance of ours, James Southall, who runs moviewave.net, which is one of the best um, online archives of, of film review, film music reviews ever. I'd encourage anyone to go and check it, check out James's work. But he makes the astute observation that Bernstein was often at his best when working with this chamber-sized orchestra with a relatively small, scaled-down orchestra. And the amount of emotion that Bernstein was able to wring out of a, sm- out of a small orchestra as opposed to a full symphony was really quite something and obviously Bernstein could work in the in the larger symphonic realm of of course and he did that many many times throughout his career but when you think of scores like To Kill a Mockingbird or Far From Heaven as you just mentioned the um the way that his despite the this is relatively limited acoustics and arm harmonics given that he's working uh, with a chamber orchestra as opposed to a bigger full symphony the amount of emotion that he's able to wring from a melody is a real it's a gift it's it's a it's a real it's a real gift Bernstein was was one of the finest melodists that, that film music has ever known and I think that because that gift was so strong like you say it cuts through and you can recognize one of his works pretty much immediately and we were lucky enough weren't we uh a few years ago to go and see some of this stuff live and I've, I've I've seen we were talking about it and I said well, when, when was this was it three was it four years ago and I've since looked it up <laughs> and found out <laughs> that it was on June the 18th not, uh, 2017 so it was three years ago just over three years ago from when we record and I'll, I'll never forget cause it was a Friday night and I'll, I'll remember because I think I met you there didn't I um, and uh, I remember because uh, the Royal Albert Hall have in the past been kind enough to give us uh, press tickets for this for, for shows which is very very good of them so I remember getting I was I was at work till like three in the afternoon and I immediately left work jumped in a cab went straight to the train station got a train to London and it was a beautiful day it was a beautiful evening and it was I just got there because I, I the train was like taking a while and it started at something like doors were opening at like six thirty, and I was like am I gonna do this am I gonna get there uh, and uh, when I got there even better, I got there on time and I was given a better seat than the one that was on the ticket when I got in. Uh, so I, <laughs> I got into like the good bit of stalls, I think, because I don't think we were sitting together for that one. I feel like I think we met up around it, but I don't think for that one we were actually sat together. I, I, I think we were because because I remember we were um, I went with my parents because the um, Elmer Bernstein scored um, a lot of music um, for films with which my dad was familiar. My dad wanted to see it, particularly The Magnificent Seven. Uh, which we'll talk about, but we we were upgraded to a to a box seat. Yes, I'm, I'm, you you came you came and sat next to I us. I did, uh, but that yeah, was that um, was that was the second half because in the first half yeah. when I got there, I was on the the main ground floor bit, and it was a really good view of the stage. And then I I, I found you in the in the midway, yeah, and you were like, yeah, I'm in a box. I was like, how? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, full credit to the Royal Albert Hall. They upgraded us for free, and then you, and then there was yeah. enough room in the box for you to come and join us, and we had an unparalleled view of the, of of the of the orchestra. 
and also of the compere John Landis, who collaborated many times with Bernstein, and he was there delivering anecdotes in between every performance. That was a wonderful evening. It was, it it was. was really remarkable. And I'd forgotten as well, but he, P- Elmer Bernstein's son, Peter Bernstein, was also there as well with John Landis doing bits. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but he was he came on as well. I've since found out while I was doing some Googling, I did a review for Flickering Myth around the time of that event. And it's actually on Peter Bernstein's website. Nice. I've, I've just found this. Like This is like three years ago. <laughs> it was a five-star five review saying how great it was. Because there, there were some brilliant things on there. Some of the things we're going to talk about today, you know, there was the Ten Commandments, there was The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, The Man with the Golden Arm. But there was also stuff like The Age of Innocence and th- Three Amigos as well, you know, and, and uh, An American Werewolf in London, things that... You know, Landis was introducing, so it was a it was a really good mix of of music. It was lovely. It was it was a special, and I hadn't actually heard all of that music completely in the way that it was presented there. So I would say, if anyone does get the chance to see any kind of Elmer Bernstein music on in on a live venue, then yeah, definitely go and do it. Well, it was a it was an incredibly profound evening because I remember my um my dad my dad started to um cry with some of the performances that they were doing because the music um drew associations of the films so vividly i think there's something about seeing a symphony orchestra playing recognizable film themes in front of you it's one of the most powerful things that anyone can experience particularly if it's music from a film that is so that has been that, with which you've identified since a child that's real that's, incre- that's incredibly profoundly emotional experience and I think it's testament to how brilliant Elmer Bernstein was that you know even after his death his music can extend that and can have that kind of impact so yeah we've chosen five scores each as per our normal system right now and and we'll have a Spotify playlist that will be up that has most of this music on with maybe one or two uh, little additions from YouTube but I think we've got a nice varied uh, mixture of of scores to discuss here and uh, hopefully you'll be able to go and listen to and um, just before we talk about them just remember please if you're enjoying the show do leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts um, with a little rating as well so more people can hear us talk about Elmer Bernstein and all the other stuff we discuss but yeah your first choice Sean is one of I think Bernstein's most beautiful and classic scores you've gone for To Kill a Mockingbird the classic 1962 drama based on Harper Lee's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel starring Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch the lawyer and uh, yeah it's I mean it's a, it's a classic film from the 1960s and I mean it is just the score is just sumptuous it's I put this in in 10 greatest scores of all time easily wow um, really um, yeah I, I, I definitely put it up there and I think what it demonstrates is the as I mentioned earlier, the power of emotional directness, the fact that a composer doesn't need to dress up the subject matter with florid, ostentatious orchestration or themes. What they need to do, as Jerry Goldsmith repeatedly said, is discover what the emotional heart of the film is and mould the music around that. And Bernstein did that magnificently into Kill a Mockingbird because what he realised after an initial struggle with the music, what he realised was that as per the book, the story is told through the eyes of young Scout uh, Atticus's uh, daughter. And it's a story of um, two children awakening 
to the sense of a world that is deeply unfair and yet is also deeply compassionate at the same time as as represented by the tremendous Gregory Peck as, as Atticus Finch. So when you when Bernstein unlocked that, what you get is one of the most gorgeously lyrical and wistful scores ever that is is almost like you know it's it's almost like music that's been filtered through a memory with the emphasis on on the um on the piano and the woodwind and the strings and there's a little harmonica influence as well just to give it a bit of deep south influence because obviously the story is set in Alabama I believe but that's done very subtly and it's it must have been a very very hard film to score because the music decidedly cannot be melodramatic because it would swamp the film and it would overtake the story and I think that Bernstein and director Robert Mulligan do a tremendous job in, as we've mentioned before, spotting the movie and locating where the music is meant to be used um, for maximum impact. And um, the relative discretion of the score is what helps make it so powerful. And uh, despite the fact that I've said that it's it's got one of the most beautiful themes ever that there are moments of darkness in the score as well there is the um the character of the um the racist um bob yule who is a vile character and that the that character makes his presence felt as the narrative proceeds and the score gets darker and slightly angrier as the the two kids Jem and scout adds because his kids become aware of this character but then there is that redemptive just stunningly beautiful final movement at the end where you get the narration from scout and the camera pulls away from the window up into the sky and you've got bernstein's strings just soaring along with it it's just it's a it's a breathtaking score and it, it was oscar nominated in 1962 it didn't win it lost it to lawrence arabia um, maurice Jarre. i have to be honest lawrence arabia is one of the most towering achievements in film history and Maurice Shah's score is spectacular I have to say I would much rather that the intimacy and the kind of understated beauty of To Kill a Mockingbird had got it that year I, I, I have to be honest I mean I think there is the assumption that just because a score is, is bigger that makes it more worthy uh, I think in this instance, I would say no. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it is one of those examples, though, where we, we've had plenty of them on this podcast, haven't we, where we go, how did that win? How did that possibly win against, you know, Alien or whatever? And we're like, yeah. well, in this case, much as, yeah, you, I, I think I do agree with you. You, you can't begrudge Lawrence of Arabia in a way. You know, it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, yeah. So we can forgive that one, but it's not a, a, too much of a crime. But yeah, I think you're right. And it was re-recorded this, wasn't it? It was re-recorded in the 70s. Uh, Bernstein re-recorded the score and then uh, he recorded it in 96 with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra for a Varese Saraband release. So he re-recorded it a few times, the last being just a few years before his death. But yeah, I mean, it is it is beautiful, absolutely. It really is beautiful. Like there is, it is one of those scores that just, you know, I think you put, you put it brilliantly there when you said it's like filtered through like a dream because that, that you do really get that hazy sense about it while being really profound and powerful it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. I suppose the the other thing I want to mention as well is on the original recording, the um, the piano performance that you hear was uh, undertaken by none less than John Williams, the John oh, Williams. 
Wow. Uh, okay. Because he was a session pianist. And it was funny, we mentioned contemporaries of various composers earlier. At the time that Elmer Bernstein had got himself established in Hollywood through the 1950s and 60s, John Williams hadn't yet got himself to the stage of fully fledged Oscar winning composer. So he was a session pianist on other people's scores. I believe the Pink Panther as well might be, he might have performed the piano on the Pink Panther for Henry Mancini, but it's definitely him on Killer Mockingbird. It's a little, little bit of trivia there, fans. Yeah. Think- yeah. A little bit of a sign of what's to come, really, because he's like about 10 years younger than Bernstein, isn't he? John Williams. So yeah, it's, it's just the next sort of era of uh, film composers. So yeah, fantastic. So for my first choice, I've gone for a, another very well-known score to a very well-known film. Uh, because as as it always works, Sean, for, you know, quite often you will pick out, you know, some hidden gems as well as some really good ones. And I, I always go for the the big splashy. Everyone knows this <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> but in in the case of Bernstein, you you need those. You need you need those. Everyone knows this ones because believe me, it was really difficult for me to whittle down this list. And I when I made my selection, I left out some really famous ones. And I was hoping that you would pick up the slack and include them. And you did. Oh well, that's <laughs> so all right. I'm really then. grateful for that. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh, along that basis, then yeah, I've gone for uh, the Great Escape, which everybody knows. Everyone knows. 1963. War film, Steve McQueen, uh, a whole host of names, James Garner, Richard Attenborough, uh, Charles Bronson, Donald Pleasance. While you're relaying about the film show, <laughs> can I show you that underneath? <laughs> Just do it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, but this is it, right? This film has got one of those tunes, one of those themes that, like we've talked about before, for things like John Williams, actually, things like Superman or Jaws or whatever, it is instantly known. Like, everybody knows the theme to The Great Escape. I mean, it's been particularly popularised, actually, in football culture, because especially when you get England games, you get them whistling or singing or humming The Great Escape en masse, you know, in football stadiums. And that's been the case for decades now. Um, So... Not everyone in that football stadium is going to know where this is from necessarily, but I still would venture that a lot of people have seen The Great Escape because it's constantly, constantly on television. Like it feels, it should have its own channel. The Great Escape. <laughs> it should. Like, yeah. like, I don't think there's a week that goes by where it's not on telly in the UK. I mean, it, it's just on constant repeat because I suppose it's it's a really it's you know it's it's a famous story. You know, Steve McQueen leads a band of rebels in the war to escape a German POW camp, uh, and I, I, it's one of the, I think it's one of those films that has kind of gone beyond its quality, like in a way, because it's it's a, it's a decent film, it's pretty good, but I don't think it's fantastic. But I think everyone would remember maybe The Great Escape being slightly better than it is for things like you know the classic Steve McQueen on the bike and and all this kind of thing, um, but. There's no getting away from the fact the music is fab. You know, it's 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 Elmer Bernstein tuned into a different side of what he can do. Something much more raising and playful. Because that's the other thing that comes out in some of these scores we're talking about today, actually. There is a really sort of playful nature to Bernstein at the same time. Yeah, there is. And I think that... Um... What, what what was it? What was I saying earlier about the the ability to craft a melody that that people the world over can remember? That's a remarkable skill. Uh, to, 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 for for a piece of film music to translate into a football crowd is astonishing. That never happens, and I think what it shows is that the, the nature of the melody 
clearly works so brilliantly in um embodying what the spirit of the film is which is obviously what that's that's the core of what film music needs to do and i think that what bernstein does in this score is that despite the fact that the parameters of the film are quite wide it's set during world war ii you've got various people from the the, the across the allied divide working together within this one camp so the parameters of the story are quite broad and yet the score doesn't necessarily play up the militaristic gloomy aspects of the war what it does is as i said before it's got an intimate whimsical feel to it in the way that and that that bernstein often does it is right you it's playful and i think what the score does is it, it plays up that underdog spirit of the characters brilliantly it doesn't um it's not in it's not a score that's necessarily interested in the instrumental heroic conventions of what happens although that does play more of a part towards the end of the score as we get the scenes with steve mcqueen on the bike where the brass section comes more to the forefront for the most part what the what the score is doing is it's got a kind of darting light sense of movement and whimsy and it's about giving inner voice to these seemingly unflappable characters who despite their outer reserve are clearly so determined to to get to get one up on the nazis and i think that clearly bernstein did that so tremendously well that people have subsequently recognized that in the years since hence why it's been adopted in in football matches and and so on and so forth and there are there is a bit of militaristic like snare drums and so on but it's remarkable how how little that is actually in the score uh, only maybe in in the final quarter in the final third of it and i think in terms of a score that's it's very cheerful for the most part it's, it's a very it's a very cheerful score and you wouldn't think looking at the subject matter that well it it, it it would call for a cheerful score but i think what it does is it creates a real sense of escapist empathy with the characters and it's a very, very difficult thing to pull off. I don't know if any other composer other than Bernstein would have managed it because I think what what the, you run the risk of maybe patronising the subject matter or undermining the dramatic integrity of the movie. Bernstein was so good working with um, John Sturgis, the director, that he doesn't do that. His, his dramatic instincts were you know, incredible. I suppose it works in the sense that the film itself is... It is escapist, you know. It is all about these these plucky band of heroes getting out of the the war camp, you know. It's so I think he provided a score that fits that heroic, you know, fun fun tone that they were going for in many ways. Just as a, a little bit of an extra about the football stuff, that the the, the uh, particularly the Great Escape has been played by uh, who used to be known as the Pucker Pies England Band. <laughs> Is there anything Since... more English than that? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Because uh, they're a brass band that started in 1996 uh, and they were sponsored by Pucker Pies from 2006 until 2014. They started performing at England Games in 1996, uh, at which point the manager of the team at that time, Terry Venables, was one of the people who heard them playing uh, at she- for Sheffield Wednesday away fans at Arsenal in London. And he said, come and play in Euro 96, which was you know one of the big cultural events of the 90s really in the UK it was it was a real it was a real moment actually the Euro 96 I remember it quite vividly and that was the first time they started to play on like these drums and these these this brass instrumentation the 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 great escape theme and then it's passed through and it's subsequently was at the they recorded a theme tune 
based on the Great Escape for the 98 World Cup, and then another one in Euro 2000. And it's still going today, uh, even though they come under a lot of criticism, apparently, from other fans who are fed up of them, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think there's there's a bit of a reactionary thing to it being a little bit too patriotic and nationalist these days, which is you know a fair. I mean, you know that football's full of that stuff, so it's a it's a fair it's a fair thing. But it just it just shows how this yeah this has a piece of music, particularly the theme, because that's kind of what they play. You know, they don't obviously play the whole score, but they, it's just the theme. It's the dun 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 dun, dun and it's representing. It's come to represent in the UK a sense of nationalism, actually, for better or worse. So it's just amazing how a piece of film music breaks through and can reflect that mood. Yeah, and it's only only select piece of film music do that. You think of uh, a lot of the works of John Williams or Hans Zimmer. If for a piece of film music to do that, to break out into a mass audience who might not necessarily be fond of classical music is is remarkable. I mean, I was... Um, there's I don't know if you've watched the Eddie Izzard um, stand-up act of Dress to Kill... Uh, where no. he he does an extended thing about about the Great Escape and it's brilliant. Uh, it's it's really funny. And when he talks about um, how Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen's out there on the bike, he's out there, and then the music's going ba 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 ba. And meanwhile, all the, all the British are going, "Can't we do a motorbike?" Damn! <laughs> so he, he plays up the coolness of Steve McQueen versus the uptightness of the British. And he's like, he's like, so meanwhile, all the British are there in you know, trilbies, uh, sort of uh, overcoats, uh, top hats, briefcases. Meanwhile, Steve's there in jeans. In a T-shirt, <laughs> disguised as an American man, <laughs> which yeah, just, says it all. <laughs> yeah, and I think to go back to what you said earlier about the Great Escape being escapist. Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, and the music plays that up just wonderfully. Yeah, it does, and it's it's a lot of fun, even if it's not necessarily the best film that we're talking about on this list, or or really Bernstein's peak, but it, it's definitely one of his most memorable. So yeah, it's it's uh, very very good. And a very interesting choice is your second one, which is a film that I, I'd i forgotten, actually, because this was played at the Bernstein concert, but I'd, I'd admittedly forgotten this piece of music, which is surprising, because I think this was great. Um, from The Man with the Golden Arm, from 1955, uh, which is an uh, American drama directed by Otto Preminger, one of the you know great classic uh, film directors of, of that era, based on uh, a novel of the same name, starring Frank Sinatra... Uh, Kim Novak, Darren McGavin, amongst other people, and I, I, I think it was, it was, you know, very well fated at the time. But I don't know if this is a film necessarily that is passed down outside of cinema fans, particularly. It's, got, it's, it's, uh, you know, from from the fifties. But the score is is really quite something. It's quite surprising, almost. It's, it's actually quite jazzy and it's got it's quite upbeat and stylish in a very different way than you hear from a lot of other Bernstein scores yeah it's it's one of the pioneering jazz scores from this period in Hollywood that's why I I chose it because jazz is generally accepted to have arrived in uh, Hollywood film music with Alex North's A Streetcar Named Desire, which I believe was released in 1951. Uh, so this came a few years after it. So this is very much Bernstein picking up the mantle of what Alex North had done. A Streetcar Named Desire, like To Kill a Mockingbird, would be one of those top 10 you know, greatest film scores ever, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that this, The Man with the Golden Arm is brilliant. It, it, it's just, I was, I was listening to it in full again uh, the other night, and it, it just 
it might seem a bit glib to say it, but it's just the definition of badass. It's just so, it's so swaggering and it's got such a sense of style about it. Um, and it's really punchy and really energetic. And um, I mean, for those people who are interested, there was another, um, Elmer Bernstein did several jazz scores. Uh, another one is The Sweet Smell of Success for the Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis film, which is another really uh, terrific uh, jazz score. But yeah, there was very much, um, at, at, the, at the point that Bernstein composed this, the idea of jazz as applied to film music was still a relatively novel concept. And I suppose one could also point to the likes of um, Bernard Herrmann, um, The Trouble with Harry, uh, things like that, um, which was composed around the same time. Uh, it's just it's it, the use of jazz as a dramatic narrative device to illustrate what is going on with the, the Frank Sinatra character is terrific. It's got a kind of seediness and a sleaziness to it, yet it's also got a kind of rebellious swagger to it there is also it's a classic sort of early early to mid hollywood era counterpoint the feminine theme for kim novak's character molly is very much done on these tender like wavering strings which i suppose in this day and age if one were to compose for um for a female character like that it might come in for some form of criticism it's like well that's a bit in the amount might be a bit glib and it might be a bit stereotypical but in the context of this score it offsets the trumpets and the saxophones and the trombones just brilliantly. And some of the pieces have just such a rocking sense of energy to them. I mean, I suppose if one wants to check out the main theme, the track is um, Frankie uh, Frankie Machine, which is the name of Frank Sinatra's character. It's it's really something. It's 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 really really great. And it was um, it was uh, nominated for for an Oscar. Didn't win. Uh, Bernstein only got one Oscar throughout his career, which was for uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie in 1967, which is a score that neither of us have chosen. But again, like Jerry Goldsmith, think one Oscar, one Oscar in in this career is remarkable. The amount of times that Bernstein was shafted for Oscar in terms of Oscars is just just is appalling, really. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Like, I, I suppose what surprises me with this score is. That and I haven't seen the film, admittedly, but the you know the description of the film is that it's it's quite dark. You know, it's a, it's a drug addict getting clean in prison, having difficulty staying that way when he's out. You know, to a drug addict dealing with drug addiction at a point when you know cinema wasn't really doing that. You know, it was quite controversial. Yet the score could have been from a spy thriller. You know, it could have been from a plonky. You know, weirdly, do you know what it reminded me of? Uh, and, and maybe this was definitely inspired by the man with the golden arm, not the other way around, obviously. But um, do you remember the, the the film, the ninety, I think ninety seven sort of pastiche of the man who knew too much, the man who knew too oh, little, with Bill with Murray. Bill, Bill Murray, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. And um, Christopher Young did the score for that. Christopher yeah. Young did the score yeah. for that. Now, now the, the I quite like the film to be fair, but you know, it's not it's not a great of cinema. But the score is really good, actually. The Christopher Young score is really good. I don't know why, but I immediately thought about that score when I was listening to this. And even though they're not the same as such, but it's just that style. Even the man with the golden arm, it sounds like it could be a Bond movie. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> you know, it does. It's strange. I think there's something about there's something about jazz. There's something about the maybe the improvisational quality and the instrumental quality of jazz that speaks of many many different things. Uh, I mean, when I hear it in the context of Man the Golden Arm, that's really interesting to say that it could be a spy, it could come from a spy thriller. Yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, for me, what it signifies is 
the birth of the modern American city. It's bustling, it's dirty, there's lots of corruption, there's lots of, you know, low-life characters, and it's perfectly aligned to the film, because as you quite rightly said, the film was very controversial at the time. The idea of dealing so openly with drug addiction and manipulative characters it was very dark for its time Otto Preminger the director was was famous for that for dealing with these complicated subjects but yeah it's it's fascinating that jazz is a very very contradictory medium and when you apply it to film I think it becomes almost more contradictory if you know what I mean yeah it does yeah it can sort of go in different directions but it was fascinating yeah very and really great really great uh, really great piece of music so I'm really glad you introduced me to this score properly through this I've gone for with my choice. Maybe this is this is a slight cheat because my second choice is the uh, the score to Cape Fear, but the 1991 remake by Martin Scorsese, starring uh, Robert De Niro, De Niro playing you know. You know. Um, we had to get, I, had to, I had to try and squeeze it, uh, an impression in there somewhere, even, even if it's fairly out of context. Shall I offset it with a? Oh, so I'm Al Pacino. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be done. Yeah, let's just talk about heat for the next day. Yeah, hour. yeah. Should we just do uh, the coffee shop? Brother, you are going down. <laughs> you know Sorry. what? You know what? I can't. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll stop. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Cape, Cape Fear 91. And obviously the, the original uh, Cape Fear was scored by Bernard Herrmann. And from what I understand... Uh, Scorsese essentially wanted Elmer Bernstein to sort of port in that Herman-esque style for 91's Cape Fear, even if it's a slightly different take on the same material. So, I mean, I, I think I think it's brilliant. You know, I think it's a fantastic th- thriller score, really terrifying points. Um, that very and one one of the uh, pieces of music that Bernstein, it, 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 it's different. Again, it's quite different from a lot of the other things on this on this list. But I mean. What do you think the thought process there with Scorsese was in terms of wanting to evoke Herman's music and, and you know, similar themes and that kind of thing through Bernstein, who would have been a, a Herman contemporary, as we've said? Yeah, it's interesting that that's it's a really interesting choice, this, because uh, Bernstein and Herman were breaking down boundaries at the same point in Hollywood in the 1950s and 1960s and because Martin Scorsese has got such an encyclopedic knowledge of all cinema I imagine that he probably I mean he would have had his pick of composers and he thought well given that Bernard Herrmann died in 1976 so therefore he can't score my 1991 remake of Cape Fear what other composers would have been contemporaneous around the time that Bernard Herrmann did the original Cape Fear score in 1962 I mean one of the very few would probably have been Jerry Goldsmith but he I imagine it was probably just a process of elimination he probably thought well in the year that the original Cape Fear came out um, Elmer Bernstein was was breaking down boundaries albeit with very different films like To Kill a Mockingbird so I imagine it might have just been a logical process of lining up the original Bernard Herrmann score with with Elmer Bernstein's own imperatives but also i think because martin scorsese is not just a director he is also an archivist and a historian and what he did in in the 91 cape fear movie is he crafted a modern day movie that is that owes deliberately owes a sense of style to the kind of overcooked 1950s 1960s approach with you know crash zooms and strange transitions and a generally kind of burbling overall sense of, of menace to the extent that it almost becomes blackly comic but that is kind of deliberate it, it's it's very much 
1991 Cape Fear, the tone of it very much is not necessarily in keeping with what you would expect from a 1990s thriller. It's got a very like kind of retro, again, slightly hysterical tone to it. Although I think it is interesting that the original Cape Fear, the, um, the Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum one, is relatively subdued. Um, but maybe Scorsese was aping a different kind of, of general 50s, 60s philosophy with his visual language. And I think he recognised that the score was crucial to that, 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 that by selecting Bernard Herrmann's score and by getting Elmer Bernstein to adapt it, it creates a kind of genetic connection with the past, which is always so important to Scorsese. The idea of legacy and heritage is so important to him as a filmmaker obviously he's an advocate for the preservation of, of celluloid and and so on and so forth so i think whenever scorsese can hark back like that he will do it and one of the ways he recognized it on this project was through the music and bernard herman's theme for cape fear is so menacing i mean the the four note like trombone theme is just one of the most famously terrifying <laughs> things uh, and the way that Bernstein dresses it up with um, rearranges it, it introduces more like wavering like woodwind instruments and sort of tremolo strings, which have a kind of watery ambience to it, which is obviously entirely appropriate given where the story ends up. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very, it's not one that I would I would have picked, but there is a kind of synthesis between two composers who burst into Hollywood at roughly the same moment and then one died in 1976 then you have the other one picking up the mantle in 1991 interesting choice yeah and I suppose my question to you would be what's the better film which one 62 mm. or 91 I mean the 62 one is more contained and more reserved and maybe scarier I think the 1991 for me is again it's got a different register to it it it, it pushes it so over the top by intention that it does almost become a black comedy. But what Scorsese also does is he teases out the um, the themes that they weren't allowed to make explicit in the 1960s version. So the, the, the 90, 90s version is much more violent, much more upfront, but it's also about the um, that very perverse relationship that Robert De Niro, as Max Cady has with the Juliet Lewis character with the daughter, uh, which is you know the, the most that's the creepiest and most menacing stuff in the entire in the entire movie, uh, but Robert De Niro just basically plays it like a boogeyman, doesn't he? He plays it like a yeah. a, a, a towering like counselor, counselor, come out <laughs> wherever yeah. you are, like that. And it's it's horrible, it's horrible, but he almost becomes like an anti-hero. It, which Robert Mitchum decidedly was not that in the in the six one. So it's it's different imperatives, and I think the Bernstein adapting the, the the Herman score does makes the thing more overcranked and overcooked, but I think that's definitely what they were going for. I I I think ninety one by a shade, to be fair, because you know Scorsese's direction I think is better than in the first film, really. Even though the first film's got some great stuff, um, but yeah, fantastic scores both, and um, yeah, it, it was just really interesting to have a run at that. And now for something completely different for your third choice, <laughs> which is <laughs> a little-known film. And what's it called, Sean? Well, it's called Airplane. Um, surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me surely. <laughs> <laughs> you can't not do it, can you? <laughs> you know, I had to do it. I was like, come on, we got to do it, we got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> my my, 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 my favourite bit is um, later on when they reprise it. 
And he goes, uh, we're running out of time, Mr. Stryker. Surely there must be something you can do. And he's walking away. <laughs> I'm doing everything I can. And stop calling me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's just, there's so much in this. Obviously, this is the 1980 film from um, the Zucker Brothers uh, and Jim Abrahams, which is probably the most beloved and well-known cinematic spoof in American cinema history, I think Airplane. I think if you had, if you had a list of, of of films, I think Airplane would be would be number one. I mean, it, it's not my personal favourite. It's up there. My personal favourite is the first Naked Gun of this style, um, which is obviously the Zucker Brothers again. Um, but this is this is legendary, and 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 it, it's one of those films where because you remember the gags, because you remember the lines like we've just done, because you remember the whole setup, which is a spoof of the big sort of 1970s disaster well even going back to the 50s actually disaster movies you forget the music oddly enough yet the music from Bernstein plays a very important part in why this film works doesn't it yeah it it makes it funnier it's 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 one of those classic that it's often said that you can score a comedy in two very distinct ways you can make the music silly and reflect the inherent silliness of the concept, or you can make the music dead serious. Um, but in this instance, Bernstein goes for the latter, and the 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 way that that amplifies the humour is really quite it's really quite remarkable. Uh, and uh, it, there's a wonderful interview that I looked up with Zucker and Zucker and Abrams, where they said that they went to Bernstein and he got the principle of of the thing straight away. He understood exactly that the, the music needed to be scored in a dead straight faced deadpan manner, as if he was scoring a a, a kind of overcranked disaster movie but they they told him like don't don't do a sophisticated suspense score do it corny do it overblown but but serious and apparently they, there was in, in this interview i think it's with entertainment weekly they said he laughed through every went where he had to what obviously film composers have to watch films repeatedly uh, in order to be able to spot them and, and time the music and apparently he laughed through every single screening of it and he understood exactly what it was and it's it's but it's really quite remarkable the music it makes the film even more hysterically funny than it is but when you listen to the music away from the film as i did recently it actually works as a dramatic underscore really well uh, which is i don't quite know how bernstein pulled that off because i think again as we've said he was a great thematic writer and he was a great melodist even when being completely riotously silly like this he was able to conjure really listenable, wonderful music that is composed of very distinct constructs, very distinct themes. And uh, but that said, I mean, within it, there are, I mean, the, the, the classic opening scene, like when when he lifts John Williams's Jaws theme as the airplane's fin comes through the comes through the clouds. But the use of the militaristic snare drums, the low brass, the xylophones, which so perfectly meshes with the deadpan reactions of Leslie Nielsen, Peter Graves, Robert Stack and so on, because the whole idea was that Zucker and Zucker said that these guys, when they were at their peak, were funnier than most comedians of the day. (laughs) And the genius of the film was you take those guys from those disaster movies, you put them in a disaster movie spoof, and by having them play it serious, it becomes even funnier, and it works. The, the, The trick works. And then you put Bernstein's score underneath it, which gives it this almost like pompousness, this kind of pompous overblown. I mean, I'd put I'd put this up there as possibly the funniest film ever made. I mean, it's definitely in 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 my top five. It's it's just every it's a masterclass in comic timing. Like every every single performer is on is on fire, and there are so many jokes going on within the course of 
each scene. What's the scene where um, uh, with, it's with um, Leslie Nielsen and Peter Graves? Uh, he goes, uh, Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. Well, you can tell me I'm a doctor. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just not sure. <laughs> uh, he goes, well, well, can you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a a guess for another two hours. (laughs) No, I mean, you just can't land for another two hours. It's just brilliant, isn't it? It, It's it's taking taking dialogue that... It's it's taking dialogue that would have been written for previous films, but just turning the dial just a little bit to the the side, and it just becomes hilarious because it just becomes really nonsensical and and pun-based and daft. And and it it is great. I mean, they, they had a... The deadpan is is joyous and i think that's the thing with the music good music for comedy and i think i suspect we'll do an episode about comedy scores one day because yeah. i think there's a, there's more to get into with this but i think good music for comedy is all about underscoring for these kind of films that sense of deadpan straight-faced you know seriousness where the humor comes from yeah absolutely i suppose the i mean the antithesis to that would be something like jerry goldsmith gremlins which was had that synth based gremlins march which is deliberately very very silly and very anarchic yet that works so i suppose that would be the antithesis to what elmer bernstein did with airplane i suppose the I mean, airplane was astonishingly successful and a large portion of that is surely down to the music the way the music amplifies the laughs uh and it, uh, it what it did was it initiated a bizarre move by bernstein into comedy movies which lasted pretty much all the way throughout the 80s you think of stripes ghostbusters three amigos that you mentioned earlier all of that largely came from airplane and that shows how brilliantly molded his score was to this particular movie the fact that he got it instinctively he knew exactly how to make the movie uh funnier and i mean but the the, the i mean just the the love theme like the wavering deliberately sappy like overblown love theme between um ted and elaine the two main characters who are the ones who ultimately end up having to fly the plane like there's that scene where they <laughs> they, they they take the mickey out of uh, from here to eternity when they're smooching on the beach and you've got the love theme crashes over them just as the waves do. Um, and then Ted says, oh, I've got, I've got to go on this, you know, top secret, um, you know, American Air, American Air Force mission. You know, if we're, we're coming in from the north under their radar. And then she goes, uh, when will you be back? And then he goes, I can't tell you that. It's classified. He's just given her all the other information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's so... Brilliant. It, the, the, the way the music draws that out, the way the music draws out the absurdity by playing it so straight, easily makes this one of one of the best comedy scores of all time, easily. I'd, I would agree with that, definitely. Definitely. It's great. Switching it up again, we're going back in time a little bit further to, again, one of the earlier pieces of work that... Uh, that he did, and probably one of the most famous Bernstein scores again for the Ten Commandments, the um, Cecil B. DeMille film from the fifties, one of the signature films from the fifties, probably the most well-known biblical epic of that of the, that era that they were doing all the time, starring Charlton Heston as Moses. And I think it, I mean, it's 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 a classic movie. It's a long movie. Uh, it's 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 a it's a, a, a typical sort of Hollywood epic. Um, that is been that these days would be prone to elements of spoof and that kind of thing. But I think this score is pretty fantastic, isn't it? And it, and it it's Bernstein at at a level where he really is digging into grand orchestral biblical themes in a very different way from the the more 
like we say, understated or romantic and quiet, intimate sense of something like To Kill a Mockingbird. This this feels like Bernstein at his biggest and grandest. Yeah, definitely. And yet even within that, there is that signature directness. Uh, there is There is a tone that is very hard to put your finger on why it is that it's so singularly Bernstein. Yet even within the soaring parameters of a, of, a, of a biblical film school, you can recognise that it's him. And this was, as you said, early in his career. There was, there's an interesting backstory to this that I was looking into, uh, to this score. Uh, once again, anyone who is um, vaguely interested in the music that we're talking about, um, I've mentioned moviewave.net. I would also recommend moviemusicuk.us, which is um, run by John Broxton. There's a review of the Ten Commandments by Craig... Um, Lisey, Lisey, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced the name, which is really exhaustive and a really, really good uh, review. I'd encourage people to go and check that out. And apparently DeMille hadn't actually chosen Elmer Bernstein. He'd chosen Victor Young to actually write the uh, score. Bernstein was originally... Uh, brought on to compose the uh, the dance uh, the dance sequences and chants that we see played out within the context of the film itself. Uh, Victor Young was then taken ill, and Bernstein took up the mantle of writing the entire score, both the diegetic and the non-diegetic music, and is probably the score that announced him in Hollywood as a result. I mean, the main theme is it, there are many themes in the score. It's anchored by that divinity theme that which is introduced in the overture at the beginning, which is very very beautiful, and it's, you do genuinely get a sense through the music that you are being brought you are being brought close to something that is genuinely divine and awe-inspiring and the way that it does it through the strings and the brass is really quite remarkable uh there's a quote from bernstein from this review on moviemusicuk.us that i've got to read out from bernstein where he says i hope to continue to grow as a musician but at this moment i cannot even dream of ever again obtaining as important and challenging an assignment as composing the music for the ten commandments so he was he clearly recognized the expectation that was on him as a relatively young composer at that point and he he succeeded admirably the use of the um various instruments like the the cymbals and the ram's horn there's the use of a ram's horn to to commence the start of the exodus so the idea is there is a calling uh on the part of charlton heston's moses little nuances like that there's a use of a theremin during the plague sequence which gives this woozy sci-fi atmosphere that was very very much in vogue in other genres in hollywood at the time but the i watched the red sea sequence again actually that scene is still jaw-dropping even even now yeah uh the special effects are really well done and a lot of it is down it's it's bernstein's music that makes you feel it It, the, the scene is very technically very impressive but it's the music that makes you feel the emotional impact of it and the way the music becomes unashamedly heroic and propulsive towards the end there is an egyptian march which is more ominous that's for your brenner as, as the pharaoh but the the score unashamedly plays at the valor and the heroism of moses it's interesting actually i was listening to it thinking i can hear the genesis of the rhythms and the choices in the later lights of the magnificent seven i don't know if you thought that as well yeah yeah actually yeah did yeah. you get that as well i think i think there's definitely some 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 something there and i mean that's only like five years later isn't it four years later so he's he can build on the ten commandments but it's yeah, it's amazing to think that this so early on and he went on to do some brilliant stuff as we know it's amazing to think this that quote almost makes it sound like he thinks this is it this is the apex you know this they'll never be able to better this yeah definitely i think that but i mean it must must show that when a relatively young composer has this kind of burden thrust on them 
it's like blimey i'm doing i'm doing a cecil b demille picture i've just barely broken into hollywood i've been through the mccar i've been blacklisted in through the mccarthy era i've done a couple of jazz scores now i have to do a, a, a biblical epic which is the kind of most grandiose overwhelming genre how do i do it and apparently i looked up the recording sessions were spread out over 18 months so there was no expense spared on on this score either in terms of how it was recorded or in the scope of the instrumentation it's, yeah it's it's a really risingly beautiful piece of work yeah it's it's fantastic absolutely brilliant so for your next one your penultimate one you went for a film that i only vaguely sort of heard of before and he's probably the least, well, one of the least well-known films, I would venture, on this list. So you've gone for Heavy Metal from 1981, a Canadian uh, animated sci-fi uh, fantasy film produced by Ivan Reitman. And it's it's got a, a range of, of names involved in terms of people who uh, did voices for this. You know, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Harold Ramis... You know, lots and lots and lots of people. Uh, and it's it's an anthology of stories from Heavy Metal magazine. Uh, very adult-based, you know, lots of violence, sexuality, nudity. This is a strange choice for Elmer Bernstein. <laughs> when yeah. you compare it to a lot of the other things we've talked about. And, I, I mean, listening to it, I've not seen the film, but listening to it, I felt like this was, this felt, feels like the closest he's come in the this ten this 10 list anyway that we've got to doing something of a fantasy nature of actually tapping into that style of genre that maybe and you you know I might I might be wrong about this because you know a bit more about him than me maybe he didn't go into that much this feels different to a lot of his other work yeah I suppose one doesn't really think of Bernstein in terms of of fancy but he did also do the score for the the black cauldron the, the disney film a few years later so he, he did occasionally dabble in that and he I, did ghostbusters didn't he so yeah yeah which and, is again similar yeah and there is a theme from heavy metal which is one of the most beautiful themes that he ever conjured which is tana's theme which when you listen to the um the ghostly zool theme from ghostbusters that is quite clearly a reworked version of Tarna's theme. And I can only imagine that he did that because Heavy Metal probably didn't get the exposure that it did. And maybe he was so proud of what he'd come up with for Heavy Metal. He thought, right, well, I can just adopt that music a little bit and put it in this Ghostbusters movie that presumably is going to reach out to a wider audience, which it did. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating on that. Either way, the Tarna theme is one of many highlights in this score, which is spectacular. I mean, this score, I would describe it as Elmer Bernstein doing Jerry Goldsmith. It's kind of... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I see what you mean there. It's really sumptuous, isn't it? It's just, it's really big. It's got a real resonance to it in the sweepingly beautiful themes in the in the action sequences. You can really feel the the might of the orchestra. There are... Jazzy noirish interludes, which refer back to the likes of the Man with the Golden Arm. I've not seen the film. I have to say, I haven't seen the film either. But I think that the score is so strong that it acts as a narrative symphony on its own terms. And I think um, it's a shame the film isn't more well known because you've got Bernstein soaring to these fantastical heights that show that he could do it as well as Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams or James Horner or, or, or whoever. And it's a really, it's a really diverse score yet. It's all 
the the thematic base is very strong uh it's all held together and it all culminates in the in the theme for um for tana which is just breathtaking and um it's interesting that uh apparently it was the first score on which uh bernstein used what was was to become his signature instrument which is the onde onde martino which is a, a variation of the theremin uh, which has got this ghostly, woozy uh, sci-fi sound. It sounds like a theremin, but it's not quite a theremin. And he pretty much incorporated that into most, if not all, of his scores after that. Occasionally to his detriment, because a lot of people got a little bit fed up of it. It's kind of like, right, okay, there's no need to have that in, in this particular score. He used it a lot in Ghostbusters, that wavering, sort of dislocated sound. In in the context of this, of heavy metal, it works because you're dealing with something that is decidedly fantastical and strange. Yeah, it's it, this score is a, ma- it's a masterpiece, and I think it's probably one of those examples where the score deserves to be reclaimed from the reputation of the film itself, maybe. Yeah, 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 I, th- I think so, I think so. It feels like it could be a Bernstein score that gets lost, definitely, and it is fantastic, it is really, really good, and it's a great choice, it's a great choice to sort of highlight this. This was... It, as, as perhaps befitting what we're saying, this is the only Bernstein score that there isn't some trace of on Spotify. So uh, it is on YouTube. So we'll we'll put a link to this score for, uh, on YouTube in our show notes. Um, but yeah, it is the only one we couldn't put on the other playlist because it's not as well known. Um, so it's good to draw attention to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. So yeah, for my next choice, I've gone for maybe a bit of a compliment to Airplane in uh, not a less known film, but maybe a film that people wouldn't necessarily associate with Bernstein immediately. So Animal uh, National Lampoon's Animal House, the John Landis film from 1978, which is, you know, a great, I love that film. It's a great comedy. Um, it's, you know, a classic to the late 70s, just bawdy, National Lampoon-y kind of comedy. But I think I think it's brilliant. And... It's got a lot of music in there that's that's you know sort of based a lot because it's set in the fifties, so it's based a lot on sort of fifties rock and roll and rhythm and blues and that kind of thing. So there's you know things like uh, particularly there's twist and shout, which is you know which, a key part of the film is a big you know when they do shout and it's it's so there's a lot of that music, but there are actual themes in there from Bernstein, and it's quite funny because he'd known as we've said, you know, John Landis introduced the concert that we were at in uh, 2017 and he was a family friend of Landis from when they, when they were a child, when he was a child. So John Landis said, can you come and score this? And he apparently had no idea what to make of this film. It's <laughs> <Just> like understandable. <laughs> uh, this is like a, a man nearly 60 years old. He's like, what the hell is this? But again, Landis wanted, and this is before airplane, bear in mind, but he wanted him to score the film as though it's, it was a serious, a serious piece of music. So apparently he adapted the main theme, which is the Faber College theme, from the Academic Festival Overture by Brahms. So, and, and he's been, since said that this was kind of the doorway that opened him up to, to comedies, and particularly Airplane. So in, in a way, even though Animal House doesn't have lots of Bernstein music, it was a theme I remembered because, the, and you said it with the other one, pomposity is the order of the day for this because it really does sort of have that. Because the whole idea is that, you know, John Vernon's... Dean on the campus is this pompous bastard, basically, and that, and you've got all these guys like John Belushi just having food fights and all this kind of thing as a compliment. It's it's so good, and I think the music works really well in the small bits you get of it. 
to sort of underscore that. Uh, can I just admit, I've never seen Animal House. Uh, so, <gasps> yeah, I know. So Get on it, mate. Yeah, I'm going to have to... Yeah, I thought I'd just let that sink in. <laughs> yeah. we, we've each had those moments doing this podcast. Oh, gotcha. Like, it's like, <gasps> I've got loads. Like, you haven't seen that? <gasps> uh, yeah. What? Um, I, I, I need to get on that because I really want to see Bernstein's scoring context. Um, I could only find that, that one theme online. I was surprised at how little I could find of Bernstein's score uh, in this. But I think what it shows is that uh, really this score was obviously the outlier in, in Bernstein's comedy career, wasn't it? It wasn't Airplane because, as you said, this came before airplane and one must credit john landis for recognizing the ability to score comedy films seriously before zucker and zucker and abrams did it so clearly john landis's comedy musical instincts were very finely tuned at that point i suppose there is something about watching there is something about what about watching something grotesque being played in a dead serious manner that it speaks to our own impulses. It's very hard to try and try and articulate what it is, but like if something is kind of outwardly placid in terms of the body language of the of the character, you know, or if something is out, out, outwardly outrageous in terms of the body language of the characters, and yet the music strikes a sincere note, there is a kind of cognitive dissonance there that I think is just very funny. It kind of it's it's we're not hardwired to deal with that, are we? As as a species, um, it, it does create humour. I, mean, I I did I did look up because you mentioned Bernstein's adaptation of that there for Animal House. Apparently, when Bernstein came to score Trading Places for um, John Landis a few years later, he uh, Landis asked him to adapt uh, the Marriage of Figaro from Mozart. So clearly the idea of adapting pre-existing classical pieces into a into a comedy school became a kind of a running trend with them yeah and and, and this one this one's just it's I, I, yeah go and watch the film definitely and let me know what you think because i think it's it's not exactly the same as airplane but i think it, it's really going for a a sense of self-importance that is is itself comical. It's 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 itself when you put it next to like characters like John Vernon's Dean, who is fantastic. John Vernon is just one of the greatest character actors in American cinema, and he's just he's brilliant as as this Dean who hates the students with a passion, <laughs> uh, hates them, um, and he, he's just the most elitist kind of you know American you know, education person ever. And yeah, it's it's just I just love it. It just puts a big smile on my face when I think of this music and the film. So yeah, I had to throw that one in there. So your last one then is very different. This one is a, another film I uh, I haven't actually seen. This is from Todd Haynes, uh, starring Julianne Moore, Dennis Quaid, uh, Patricia Clarkson, and uh, it's well I'll leave it to you to explain this one because I haven't seen it. I've heard of it, but it's it's a particularly beautiful. Bernstein score and actually I think is it his last or it's one of it's got to be one of his last because this was 2002 it's his last score yeah it was the last score that, last Bern, that Bernstein ever did and, and what what a what a coda to go out on yeah uh yeah it's far from heaven uh so um 2002 pastiche American period drama that apes the style of those very lush 1940s 50s Hollywood melodramas that you got from the likes of Douglas Sirks you think of the likes of uh, All That Heaven Allows for instance uh, which were done in in kind of stagey theatrical manners very very bold primary colours in terms of the hairstyle of the actors what the actors were wearing 
lots of focus on um, suburban discontent. This is what Douglas Sirk did, and this is what Todd Haynes is aping in Far From Heaven through the character of, of, of Julianne Moore. She plays a housewife who comes to realise that her husband, played by Dennis Quaid, is gay. Uh, at the same time, he's, he's a closet homosexual because it's set in the 1950s. At the same time, she is a- attracted to her black gardener, played by Dennis Hayes. But so what, Far From Heaven is a really, really good film. Um, it's a very interesting film. It's, an, it's both an experiment, a, a pastiche of an earlier genre of movie, yet it also works dramatically on its own terms because what the film does as a film made in 2002 is it is able to more explicitly draw on the themes of homosexuality and racism than the original Douglas Sirk movies were able to do because they were largely banned by like the Hollywood code that would limit portrayal of such things. So Far From Heaven can take advantage of that. And the choice of Bernstein as composer was inspired because outside of Jerry Goldsmith, there was there wouldn't have been a better person to do this because Bernstein was writing these kinds of scores at the moment that Douglas Sirk was making the original melodramas. Bernstein was kind of coming of age as a composer in the 1950s at the point where the Hollywood melodrama reached its apex. So the idea of bringing Bernstein full circle back to a self-referential film about 1950s Hollywood is it was was brilliant that was a genius move on the part of of Todd Haynes because Bernstein was doing this um, I mentioned the intimacy earlier of To Kill a Mockingbird you think of scores like Desire Under the Elms as well Bernstein could create a sense of warmth and kinship unlike few other like few other composers could and what Far From Heaven does I me, mean, Far From Heaven is is a shimmeringly gorgeous score and it, it it is it sums up the appeal of Bernstein's music so brilliantly. It is a chamber size orchestra. It is largely a score that is based around one theme. So by basing a score around one theme, you create that that sense of emotional connection with an audience. You're not dressing things up in too convoluted a manner. That one theme cuts through the sexual tension and the racism and the anxiety of the story to craft that connection with the audience but it's about the variations that that theme goes through uh centrally it's got a real air of kind of wistful melancholy to it the idea that the 1950s housewife played by julianne moore is not able to express herself in the way uh that she wants and the music through the strings and the brass gives real sadness. It gives that that inner voice to her. It's also deconstructed and presented in a jazzy arrangement as per the likes of uh, The Man with the Golden Arm and The Sweet Smell of Success, as we mentioned earlier. It's a really just hypnotically beautiful score that proves very often, as was often the case with Bernstein, the smaller the orchestra, very often the better it was. And it's so it's so beautiful. And I can't imagine a composer bowing out on a more profound, perfect note. And the, the, the stars literally did a line for this. Bernstein knew exactly what Todd Haynes was doing. Bernstein was making his chops at the moment that the kinds of movies that Todd Haynes was aping were, were coming were in Hollywood. So it's just... It's just perfect all round. He was he was he was Oscar nominated for this. He didn't win again. I believe that was Elliot Goldenthal with Frida that got it that year again. Like with To Kill a Mockingbird, they should have given it to him. Uh, just if only just just to, just to cap off one of the most extraordinary film music careers in Hollywood. 
Yeah, I, I haven't heard the score to Frida. I mean, Goldenthal's a good composer, but you can't imagine it would have been better than this, really. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I don't, have you heard that score in comparison? Not for a long time, no. The film is very good. I believe Frida is one of Goldenthal's more accessible scores because Goldenthal is known for quite experimental, dissonant, avant-garde music. But I think, ironically, he won the score for Frida, which I believe, given that it was about Frida Kahlo, I think had a kind of... Uh, a Mexican influence and a more melodic influence, uh, but the, I mean, absolutely, this was this um, the, the Oscar that year was Bernstein's to lose, and unfortunately, lose it he did. But what a legacy of music he left behind! And it, w- I mean, it would have been easy to to end this discussion on Far from Heaven in in a way, you know, given it's his last score. But I thought we'd finish with another one of his classic rousing scores, one of his most famous, to sort of remember him by. Uh, so for my last one, I went for The Magnificent Seven from 1960. Again, John Sturgis, like The Great Escape a few years later. Probably, probably. I mean, this this could be the most famous Western, or one of the most famous Westerns ever, really. Yul Brynner, uh, Steve McQueen again, a whole host of, you know, well-known names. A remake of Seven Samurai, the Kurosawa film from 1954, set in the Old West, seven gunfighters protecting a small village in Mexico. And again, I think it's kind of one of those uh, pieces of music that maybe it's not quite as recognisable everywhere as The Great Escape, but it's not far behind, I think, The Magnificent Seven. The theme itself, I mean, the score is, is terrific, and it really does tap into all of those sort of western tropes and ideas in a different way to someone like Morricone would as we talked about recently with the Dollars trilogy and things but this I think the the, the main theme again is hugely recognisable isn't it I'd say along with Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly this is probably the most famous western score that's ever been composed I think it, it, it's so identifiable isn't it it's so like you, it, bearing in mind that caveat about The Great Escape it is so recognisable and I think Bernstein's rhythmic intuition and capacity for melody comes to bear on this score. There is a reason why this theme is so famous. It's because it's it's so brilliant. It melodically, harmonically, rhythmically resonates with a mass audience. It communicates the emotional narrative of the characters so brilliantly that it's it's little wonder that it, that it it it. it it's transcended the relatively niche label of film music and it's 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 found a, a wider appreciation than that. I think for me, having listened to the score again in its entirety, it's one of those classic things whereby the, the main theme is so famous that people tend to only focus on that and there is so much more going on in the score. You have the, um, the percussive theme for um, Eli Wallach's villain character, the Calvera, which is, the, I mean, the percussion work in the score. I, I listened to this again, and I was really struck by the the sort of thunderous, violent, tribal nature of the of the music for for Wallach's character and his his gang of bandits. There's a real air of impending violence and catastrophe with it, which that's offset against the joyous rambunctiousness of the main theme, which you know, the main theme appropriate enough conjures up. You know, people on horses charging across the landscape. Uh, it does that through through the rhythms, through the melodies. There is also, as all, as I've mentioned repeatedly throughout this episode on Bernstein, there is it, he knows when to dial it back and to craft a sense of intimacy because this, the, the, there is another theme for the Mexican village itself, which is 
beautiful. That that doesn't get any kind of exposure next to the main theme, with, with the emphasis on the um, on the acoustic guitar, which is lovely. I mean, that's it's important that there is a theme for that because that is what the characters are fighting for. That deserves its own theme. The way that all of these ideas circulate around each other in variously optimistic, propulsive, turbulent, angry, hopeful, melancholy tones is amazing it's it, the, the the score strikes such a huge amount of emotional registers and it's not it's not the score that i think people reduce it down to which is a lot of people tend to think of it as just an exuberant bouncy optimistic score it's more complicated than that it's more accomplished than that and i think that there is a melancholy in it as as with as with scores like to kill a mockingbird there is there is a wise there is a sageness to it there is a realization through the music that life being a gunslinger is a lonely violent affair and it will likely result in one's death and the way that the score does build that real sense of sadness and empathy with the characters before at the very at the very very at the, in the very last track you are hit with that with the the heroic stinger of the main theme which sends you out on a high but i think it's a score that there it it does give emotional voice to the loneliness of the characters as well as well as playing up their heroism it, it's tremendous yeah it's fantastic and i thought it's a good one to go out on really because i think you know, we've 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 seen with a lot of these scores that Bernstein could do all kinds of very different things, but I think he was particularly good at some of these sort of iconic themes and scores that really sort of set the template for certain particular genres of film. Uh, in in a way that you know, I I wonder if nowadays, maybe because he's he's passed away quite a while ago, I wonder if he's as famous anymore as people like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, even like Bernard Herrmann, people like that. I do wonder this because I don't hear him talked about quite as often. And I think it's surprising because, you know, when you look at things like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape to Kill a Mockingbird, they are still films that people watch that are repeated, that are on television, you know, but I don't, I don't always know if Bernstein is loved by people who love film music and his themes are, you know, played and recognised and things, but he's the man himself and his whole career quite as celebrated anymore as someone like some of the other people I've mentioned. He might, maybe he is. I don't know. I think it goes back to that problem that I've just mentioned with The Magnificent Seven is that people tend to think of it in terms of the of the themes and the the, the themes can often overshadow the person that created them and they can also overshadow the 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 broader nuances of, of a given score and i think that hopefully what we've done here is we've shown that elmer bernstein was one of the most remarkably multifaceted composers in in the history of hollywood in the history of music i mean we said this a, a few weeks ago about ennio morricone the fact that some of ennio morricone's work is arguably as famous as beethoven's ninth it, it reached out there and i would i would put Bernstein up there with it I mean certainly you could put the theme for the Magnificent Seven up there with that but it's important not don't reduce the accomplishments of the man down to one theme that you've heard whistled at a football match or a western theme that you've heard played on a bank holiday there is so much more to appreciate than that and I don't think that just happens with Bernstein I mean that happens a lot with John Williams that would happen with the Star Wars theme and it's 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 a shame but unfortunately i think as a species we're kind of wired to boil things down to their 
essence mm. and mm. hopefully what we've done is we've um hopefully we've we've in our own way set the balance straight on on that and there, there is a quote i want to return to that um 10 commandments review on moviemusicuk.us by craig lisi uh this is a quote from bernstein which i think sums up the philosophy of his music uh, of all the arts, I strongly feel that music is closest to religion. It is hard to explain what happens at the magical moment when suddenly there is music in my heart and mind and I can go to the piano and express it in sound. That is why I feel that music above all other arts can come closest to expressing religious experience and conveying it to others. I mean, if that doesn't sum it up, that's, I, I, I don't know what does. Beautifully eloquent words from Bernstein there. Yeah, it's a great philosophy there and you, you do feel you do feel that in a lot of what he's done so it's been it's been great to delve into the trove of some of his stuff and obviously you know as you said earlier we picked out just a few here and he's got such a back catalogue to go and explore so we'd encourage anyone to do that hopefully our, our playlist will be a, a starting point or a refresher if it's been a while for you to go back and listen to Bernstein but uh, absolutely go and do it because there is some absolute gold in there so yeah, it's been really fun. And this hopefully won't be the last time we do a, uh, a deep dive into a classic composer who's no longer with us. I think um, I think we'll, we'll do that again at some point. And we're, we're going to do, we're going to switch gears, I think, for our next one, aren't we, Sean? We're going to do something a little bit more contemporary, I suppose. And I think we're going to talk about the best of 10 years ago, 2010. Yeah, I can't quite believe that there have been a lot of anniversaries lately. I can't quite believe the likes of Toy Story and Inception and the social network are all now a decade old and it's just yeah. kind of like blimey <laughs> I, I don't crazy yeah, i don't i don't feel like i've got a, 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 that decade under my belt actually <laughs> i don't know about you but it's just gone no, in the blink of an eye really has absolutely so i dare say we'll get into talking about how uh how old we feel and how time seems to be speeding <laughs> off <laughs> Man, that's, um, it's mostly going to be about one. how old we feel isn't it there's not going to be very yeah. much music <laughs> no not really <laughs> There'll be a bit of music talk and a little bit like, how oh God, how old? Yeah. So yeah, look forward to that, guys. But there, there is actually some some really good stuff in 2010 that we'll delve into. So that will be quite a fun little uh, little trip. And you know, hopefully, we'll be getting some new stuff coming through the pipe. Will depend all depends on the global situation. But we're enjoying these these different types of episodes until then so it's, it's quite fun to do so thank you for joining us for another episode and remember we're part of the we made this podcast network because the uh, music of elmer bernstein is not the only thing we're talking about so we'll give you a little taste of other shows on the network in a minute but until then we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed enjoy our playlist if you happen to listen to it that you stay safe and well and we'll see you next time as we discuss the music of film between the notes Elsewhere, and we made this. Motion pictures. Cinema's reopening here, and they have this list. It's like 450 films or something. You know, you're talking about The Empire Strikes Back, The Shining, or whatever. They've got a big list of what they're allowed to show. Um, and there are some old films on there that are like pretty cringy today. Like things like Breakfast at Tiffany's, where you have... I don't know if you've seen that film. I haven't, no, actually. Mickey Rooney mm. plays Audrey Hepburn's like Japanese neighbour. Oh, God. It's probably one of my least favourite performances oh. ever. Is this like a Laurence Olivier playing the um, the Sudanese uh, like revolutionary in, in Khartoum in the 60s, where it's, he was blacked off, essentially? It's, it's terrible. It's, it leans oh. into all the stereotypes. God. And... Right in the childhood. 
So I've got lots of stuff like the Tripods, Dark Season, Brave Star, Nightmare, Robin of Sherwood, goodness knows what else that I'm going to be bringing to the table. None of which I've actually heard of. That's Good. not even. I was thinking I'd maybe like when we start came up with this idea for. Oh, I'll know a few none at all. So you know these are things roughly from 1981 to 1995. Whereas what are you bringing to the table? Well, for I'm glad you asked. I'm bringing Fairly Odd Parents, Power Rangers, Digimon, Drake and Josh, Recess and Lizzie McGuire for the first few. And then we'll get some more going. I've heard of Power Rangers. Yeah. So are you saying you've not heard of these either? No. We played this. So what is it about um, the Final Fantasy, and especially Final Fantasy VII? What, what do you like about that series? There's a lot that I like about the series. I love the system of materia and how you can actually raise that up instead of improving certain stats. Well, you can improve stats as well, but that's not really where the focus is. It's more about getting all of this magical energy up to its highest level, and then it has babies, and you have new ones, and that's so adorable. (laughs) Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.